Have you ever been told to be yourself only to realize I'm not good at doing that or I don't really like being myself? Or in a season of trying to be more confident, you might have been told fake it till you make it. The underlying belief of faking it till you make it is that if you want to grow, don't wait till you feel like it, pretend that you are it and you'll get there. But if we're honest, just being yourself or being someone who's not yourself doesn't always help, does it? In fact, pretending can only deem your sense of self. You might have heard of the term imposter syndrome. It's a situation when someone struggles with great self-doubt and feelings of being not good enough. In 2020, a team of researchers conducted a summary of over 60 studies on imposter syndrome. And they found that as many as 82% of students, medical staff and workers in other professions experience imposter syndrome. It would seem that modern society is experiencing a crisis of confidence, that flashy lights of the self-esteem movement have dimmed, and being yourself is not always as easy as it seems. And ironically, struggling with your sense of self can sometimes be most deeply felt during holiday seasons. For when the world pauses to celebrate the festivities, that is also when we're most aware of what we struggle to celebrate in ourselves. Carol Nelson puts it this way, Christmas is a time when you get homesick, even when you're not at home. And maybe you are struggling at the moment with a sense of place in the world, your self-esteem. Or maybe you have a bit of imposter syndrome, finding it hard to be confident in a world that seems to valorize self-certainty. I want to speak to you today on having both confidence and humility in our lives as people of God. I believe that the Christian faith offers us a way to see the world and ourselves in a way that isn't based on fake it till you make it. In fact, the Christian has a very different way of identity formation, and it has to do with light. What do I mean by that? I want to talk to you today about how the light of Christ can be a clarifying wisdom and an illuminating perspective in a world of doubt and division. And I've given this talk a really long but self-explanatory title. So let's see if it even fits on this screen. Don't fake it till you make it. Be whole as you become. Let's read from 1 Corinthians 3 verse 21 to chapter 4 verse 7. And it says this in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 21. So then no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. In chapter 4, it says, This then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear. But that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At the time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not? 
Amen. So what can we learn about how the light of God makes us both confident and humble at the same time? As we go back to 1 Corinthians 3, verse 21 to chapter 4, verse 7, we see three things Paul effectively says about this. Firstly, the darkness of our ego. Secondly, the light that transforms us. And thirdly, how God brings us from darkness to light. So firstly, the darkness of our ego. The context of the passage that we read earlier is about a community of people who are divided and who are in conflict with one another. This church that had originally been planted by Paul had over time become a place of division. Other leaders had come to continue to build this church after Paul. And that's why we see references to Apollos and Cephas. And this was a mixed group of disciples. Some were raised and discipled by Paul. Others were mentored by Apollos, who was also a really good minister. And soon, a strange and all too familiar tension emerged. Different people were laying claim to particular connections and groups. One person said, I was discipled by Paul, the Apostle Paul. Another person said, I'm from Apollo's group. And very soon, the same church that was meant to be a lighthouse to the city of Corinth had now become a political entity with factions and power plays. People identified first by their tribes, and now a tribal war was taking place. And speaking directly into this, Paul writes them a letter saying that the root cause for all this division, disconnection and conflict is pride and a wrong view of self and others. This is why we're not getting along, he said, but it's also the reason why there's so much conflict and pain in this world. In verse 21, we read, So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. Now, isn't it interesting that in diagnosing human conflict, Paul says the solution is to have a correct view of yourself. He says, all things are yours for you are of Christ. Why argue over the petty things when you don't just have everything you need, but everything there is? Conflict can only exist in a competition of resources and power. It's built on a sense of scarcity, but you won't even need to compete with others if you know what you truly have in Christ. And so Paul says, why limit yourself to one particular teacher? And for that matter, why even attach yourself to things of this world? For all things belong to those who belong to Christ. The present and the future, life and death and time. Christ is over all that and we are in Christ so we can be absolutely confident of what we have. You see, you can only be truly humble when you already recognize the worth you've been given. And as you have noticed, pride often needs to say aloud what it most is afraid to lose. Someone who feels the need to flaunt something about their lives, whether great riches or status or, or power, often does so because that is the very thing that props them up. But humility tends to be understated and unbordered. There is a certain ease about a humble person because that which is most secure need not be put out on display. So pride and boasting are what Paul diagnoses for why we don't have peace in our relationships, for why we struggle in our identity. What's his antidote? Humility and confidence in what we do have. And that brings us to the interesting subject of self-esteem. 
You know, up until the 20th century, many traditional cultures around the world believed that the root of all evil in the world was high self-esteem. That too high a view of yourself was really the problem behind vices and bad behaviors. Ancient societies believed that hubris, the Greek word for pride or an overestimation of the self, was what caused moral failures. It caused conflict and problems in the world. But you know, this view shifted with the dawn of the 20th century as modern culture began to diagnose social problems with the opposite reason, that it is low self-esteem, a lack of self-esteem that is the reason why people have problems. The view now is that people behave badly, abuse their family, treat strangers poorly, not because of too much self-esteem, but a lack of self-esteem. The dominant idea here is this, that people need a higher view of themselves to be better. In 2002, an article written by psychologist uh, by the name of Lawrence Slater was published in the New York Times magazine, and it was entitled, The Trouble with Self-Esteem. In it, she, she noted that we all have, as a modern society, bought into the self-esteem movement wholesale. The idea that your self-esteem is the most important predictor of your future success. That the less confidence you have, the worse you do. The more confidence you have, the better you do. And based on these beliefs, we have created self-esteem programs and drummed into ourselves huge heapings of praise, regardless of actual accomplishment, as one psychotherapist puts it. But she goes on to say that this idea that all you need is higher self-esteem, that idea hasn't paid off either. Our crime rates are not getting any lower. Mental health issues are not getting better. Human conflict hasn't reduced. And in fact, one researcher in the LSC even went on to suggest that high self-esteem may even be the culprit to vices, not a cure. Shockingly, they found that people with high self-esteem pose an even greater threat to those around them than people with low self-esteem. They were more willing to harm others, be competitive, and their inflated view of self meant that they were more easily deflated. Why? Paul chalks it down to hubris. In verse 6, he describes pride as being puffed up. He says, then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. And here, Paul uses in the Greek a word called phusio, which means to be overly inflated, to be blown up beyond its proper size. And in a sense, neither low self Esteem or high self-esteem are the answer to our identity because both rely on puffing up. High self-esteem is already overly inflated while low self-esteem is deflated, which means that it either, is, it either used to be inflated or it needs to be more. What Paul says is the answer is not to puff up the ego more, but to recognize its emptiness. It's only when we recognize the darkness of the human heart that we can begin to let God's light in. In verse 5, Paul writes, He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At a time, each will receive their praise from God. Until we see what is hidden in the darkness, we cannot truly walk in our true identity. You know, a few years ago, uh, just as we were about to go to bed, my wife Jacinta told me that her sister Joyce would be staying over at our house the next day. She told me, Joyce is coming over to stay with us tomorrow. And for some reason, it was quite late at night, I assumed that that meant Joyce would come over in the morning, at least from 8 a.m. onwards or in the afternoon. And Joyce comes to our house quite often. She has a set of our house keys. And so I just went to sleep. I didn't think much of it. 
We went to bed shortly afterwards, and around two hours later, into my sleep, I was woken up by some noise downstairs. And okay, the context is this. I'm a really light sleeper, and when I was young, an intruder tried to break into our house. So I've always been quite watchful about the possibility of a break-in, right? And so at 2 a.m., I hear the front door open, the footsteps coming up the staircase, and I begin to panic, and I go straight into fight mode. I jump out of the bed, I look for the nearest weapon in the dark, and immediately I regret not having anything sharp in the room. And the noise of the intruder begins to get louder and louder, and by now I know that it's going to be very soon before they reach and break down the door. So I grab the nearest weapon I could settle for, a clothes hanger. And then I think, instead of waiting for the intruder to enter the room, I should take them by surprise, right? They would be thinking, I'm still asleep. And so if I run out charging, shouting at the top of my lungs, they're never going to expect that. And then they're going to run away. So by now, the footsteps are getting nearer and nearer outside my room. And with my heart absolutely racing, I charge at the door and I'm shouting, Hey, who's there? I don't even know why I asked that question. It's not like I was expecting an answer. <laughs> and as I open the door, ready to attack, my hand holding the hanger up, I'm about to attack this person in front of me, but as my eyes get adjusted to the light, I see who it really is. And Joyce remembers it like this. There was a loud shout, the door opened, Abel stood there with a hanger and his boxes, and he said, oh. I wonder if you've ever felt like the lights turn on in your life. And it has made you realize some uncomfortable truths about yourself. If we are to embrace the identity that God has given us, we need to first face the darkness of our own hearts by letting the light of God's truth in. Later, Paul wrote, For you are all children of light, children of the day. We're not of the night or of the darkness. All throughout Scripture, we see an interplay between light and darkness to represent the battle between good and evil, the battle between truth and lies. At the start of the Bible, we're told that the earth was formless, a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep. But as God began His works of creation, His very first act was to declare, let there be light, and there was light. In the Old Testament, what is true in a physical way is often also true in the spiritual. And later on in Scripture, darkness would be associated with sin, evil, ignorance, and confusion. In another letter to the Ephesians, Paul equated darkness with pride. He wrote of those walking in darkness, their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against Him. But at the dawn of His ministry, Jesus proclaimed, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. I wonder if you need a little bit of light right now. The story of Christmas is that things in this world can get really dark. Things in our lives can get really dark. But the answer to darkness is not to pretend it isn't there or to fake it till you make it, but to turn on the light. And the first lesson about light is that we don't produce it ourselves. This brings us to the second thing that Paul says in his letter. First, he talks about the darkness of our ego. And then secondly, he contrasts this picture with the opposite of that, the light that transforms us. In verse 1 of chapter 4, Paul writes, This then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. 
and set against the power jostling of the Corinthian church, Paul reminds them that he's only a servant with a role. And then in verse 3, he says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. And what he's saying is this, I don't care what you think of me or what others think of me or even what I think of myself. In verse 4, he says, My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. In other words, Paul's sense of self is not dependent on either the inflating praise or the deflating criticism of others. It's not even based on his view of himself. It's simply based on what God thinks of him. That is the ultimate truth that forms the foundation of his identity and self-estimation. And then he goes on to explain that truth looks like this. It looks like the light of God shining into your heart. Now, did you know that light is a major theme of the Bible? Light is mentioned in every book of the Bible. Light was the first thing God created at the dawn of creation. Light represents God's power, Habakkuk 3 verse 4 says, and His brightness was as the light. Light is a picture of God's presence. In Exodus 13 verse 21, it says, God provided His people with a pillar of fire at night to guide them in their journey. Light is used to describe the truth of God's word. Uh, The psalmist says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light on my path. And this is also why God's people would associate God with light. In Psalm 27, we read, The Lord is my light and my salvation. And notice, in every depiction of God's light, God is the light and we're the ones who need that light. We can't produce it ourselves. And yet, interestingly, humans didn't always believe that. From as early as 400 BC, the predominant theory about how sight was produced was People used to believe that our eyes produced beams of light that shot out to the world to give us sight. This was a widely held uh, belief made popular by Plato and his students. People believed that if some animals seem to have light in their eyes at night, like cats, surely it must mean that our sight comes from the light in our eyes. This was called the emission theory. And what was the operating assumption? We are the producers of light, therefore our sight comes from our light. But you know, one day someone realized that this emission theory couldn't be true. Because if it was true, then surely someone with weak eyes should be able to see the same object clearly if someone else with good eyes looks at it, right? And can you imagine the the sadness that might have come with that realization? We don't actually have Superman eyes. We can't actually make our own light. Our sight doesn't come from ourselves. Light is external. It is given to us. And pride is to believe that I can produce my own vision, my own truth. But humility is to depend on something I can't, on my own, produced. You see, to allow the light of God into our lives is to say, I need the truth that I can't on my own see. But more than that, I need the life that I can't on my own create. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, If I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. When you recognize the limits of yourself, even the darkness of your heart, and let the light of Christ in, you begin to experience the life that only God can create in you. It's an illuminating light that gives you the truth of where you are. But more than that, it is the light that gives you the way to go. God loves us so much that He meets us where we are, but He also loves us too much not to leave us where we are at. 
And this light doesn't just reveal where you can grow, it gives you life to grow as a new creation. This is the basis of Paul's unshakable confidence and quiet humility. When you have received God's light, you don't have to compare who is brighter, who shines more. You have an identity that is built not on the puffery of men, but the power of God. This completely transforms how we view ourselves. In his book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, Tim Keller writes, True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. This is the freedom of self-forgetfulness, the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. You see, sin is the forgetfulness of God, while humility is the forgetfulness of self. And no one is more confident than the person who doesn't need to prove anything about himself because he's free from the very need to advance himself. Tim Keller would also write that the gospel of Christ means that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This shows us great humility, that we are not our own light, but it also gives us great confidence that we have the light of the world. So how do we have an unshakable identity that, that is imposter syndrome proof, that it isn't based on what others think of me, that isn't even based on what I think of me? Paul writes, firstly, recognize the darkness of our ego. Secondly, receive the light of Christ that transforms us. But how do we do that? How did Paul get this freedom of self-forgetfulness? He tells us, but we have to carefully look. He says in verse 4, My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. In other words, I no longer rely on myself to reach the truth of my identity, to find the way of purpose, to generate the life that I need. It is the Lord whom I rely on. Just as a plant cannot generate its own light to live, I must stand under the light, the light that reveals the truth that I need to know, that shows me the way that I need to go, and that gives me the life I need to grow. But how does this happen? Jesus said in John's gospel, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This statement was made by Jesus during the Festival of Tabernacles, a time when the Hebrew people remembered God's faithfulness to them during their lost wilderness years. Remember the pillar of fire at night? In the darkest days of the lives of these people of God, while they needed rescue, completely out of their depths and abilities, God shone His light over them. He came to them to give them new life. Just over a year ago, someone called Amanda joined our Alpha group. And Amanda has given me permission to share her story and it's brilliant. Amanda actually came to church on her own, seeking answers after a really difficult time during the pandemic. And she signed herself up to join an Alpha and then she walked into a service one day here at HTBB. And in, in the middle of that service, while the host was speaking from the stage, Amanda began to have a conversation in her head and she would later realize that she was praying. She asked God in her, in her head, Jesus, if you're real, give me a sign that I should follow you. And just then the host began to invite people to consider getting baptized. So Amanda prayed in her heart, okay, Jesus, if you want me to get baptized, give me another sign. And shortly after that, 
she received a WhatsApp message. Get this from a person called Jesus. Thing. The message read, Hi, morning, Amanda. And it came so out of the blue that she laughed to herself. And then she replied cheekily, Hi, morning, Jesus. Imagine having a WhatsApp conversation with Jesus. And it turned out that a while back, Amanda used to work in a diving company. And one of the diving students, a man called Jesus Nafa, contacted her years later to pay for his course. And on this day, as Amanda prayed for a clearer sign from Jesus that he is God, Jesus Nava sent her a message saying, I have made the payment. You see, the only way we can walk in the light, the only way we can live as children of light, as Paul wrote, is to receive Christ's light. On the cross, Jesus made the payment in full. He went through darkness to give us light. He went through death to give us life. But he wasn't just a substitute for our darkness. He was the solution to our darkness. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You cannot become what you are not, but you can become what you behold. And as we worship Jesus, the light of the world, we are shaped into his likeness. We bear his glorious light. We see with new eyes of hope, the world that God loves. At the first Christmas, the light of Christ entered into a dark and broken world. And if you ever wonder how much God loves you, you need only to look at the gift of His Son and the journey that He took for you. You see, there's no evil too dark that God's light cannot pierce through. There's no shadow too big that God's light cannot overcome. There's no valley too deep that God's love cannot reach. This Christmas, remember the plains where the shepherds encountered His light. Go with the Magi who followed the light of the star of Bethlehem. Ponder upon the mystery that is the child in the manger, the light of the world, the word of God made flesh coming to us as a helpless baby. And as we gaze at the awe of his light and wonder, we will forever be transformed. Amen. So why don't, wherever you are right now, why don't you join me in this simple prayer? Come, Holy Spirit, we open our hearts to you. We invite you to shine your light into our lives. And thank you that the life and the light of Christ transforms us. In Jesus' name, amen.